Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Morning, church. How we doing? Good, good. Hey, anybody uh, ever like have a time in their life where they realize that they're aging? Yeah? I was curious. Yeah, cool. I got a round of applause. Amen. Cool. Cool. So I'm sitting today. Um, let me fill you in. Normally, I don't sit. If you're new with us, normally I stand up and move around and the people operating the cameras in the back get upset. Um, but uh, but uh, when, when you reach my age, apparently this is what happens. Okay. So I'm 37, right? I know some of you are upset about that. Um, I'm upset too. Um, <laughs> uh, so Jeff and I, we went to a uh, kind of a conference this week. It was a great conference where we get to sit down with uh, a, a pastor of a church, uh, a larger church, and just talk leadership and talk about running a church and, and pitfalls and different things and strategies and all that stuff. It was great. And, but when you go to a conference, oftentimes what you end up doing the vast majority of the time is sitting, right? That's all we did. It was just, we just sat the whole time. We took a plane to get there, and we sat on the plane, and then uh, we got to the rental place, which, by the way, we got upgraded to a really sweet BMW for our rental. Not upset about it. Um, that was the only good part. Um, but then we sat in the rental car as we drove to get to where we're going, and then I slept in a bed two nights that uh, wasn't my normal bed, and then we were at the conference, and I sat at the conference, and part of the way through, as I'm, as I'm sitting there, I told you, I was like, man, my back does not feel great, and I didn't want to be that guy who, like, stood up in the middle of the conference, like, went to the back to, like, stretch his back or anything like that, because you're always, like, suspect of those guys, you know what I mean? Like, does his back hurt? Does he have gas? Like, what is going on? Like, I didn't want to be that guy. Uh, <laughs> so I pushed through, powered through, we got done, and uh, we headed back on Thursday, and I got home, and told my wife who had been alone with the kids for three days, hey, honey, my back really hurts. I need to lay in bed, <laughs> which is never a great reception. She's like, what'd you do? I was uh, sitting at a conference for three days. Um, so anyway, so then that night, our dog, of course, decides to get sprayed by a skunk, okay? So I know we've got so many skunks in our neighborhood. Um, and uh, my dog got sprayed by a skunk. This is like 1030 at night. And our dog stinks, and so we're like, we gotta, we gotta bathe our dog. So we bring our dog in to bathe him, get him washed up. And I'm sitting there spraying my dog, and all of a sudden I can just feel my back just go, right? And it's just like up, and I'm on the floor whimpering. Like my dog smells like a skunk. My wife is washing him. I'm on the bathroom floor, like not able to get up. Um, it was, if anybody was there, you would no longer be going to our church, I guarantee. I was, I was, it was that sad state of affairs, essentially. Um, so, uh, so anyway, uh, I'm, I'm not young anymore, um, and uh, my back is reminding me of that, um, and so, uh, so that's just what happened. So uh, let's pray and close. No, um, but, uh, but I'll be sitting today, um, and I hope you're okay with that. If not, uh, find me a remedy for my back. Um, but, uh, but anyway, as I was like thinking through that, even thinking through aging, I was thinking about this idea that I'm not young anymore. Like you are all, for the most part, not, no insult uh, intended. You're not young anymore. We are constantly aging, progressing <laughs> towards aging. Um, and I uh, started thinking about when I was younger. So I, I, I was all the way back to when I was 16 years old, right? Um, and, uh, and I thought about my first job. So for a second, just turn to the person who you came with. Tell them what your first job was, or think about it if you came by yourself. What was your first job that you ever had? Go ahead, take a second and, and, uh, and share that with us. 
uh, I actually asked First Service to share um, their first, first jobs, and uh, so someone said uh, uh, they worked at a cannery for 25 cents an hour, canning some sort of fruit, I forgot what it was, but 25 cents an hour. Somebody else had mentioned that they sold peanuts at the roller derby as their first job. I was like, how do you even get that job? I don't know how you get that job. Uh, for me, my first job was uh, I played water polo. So like all water polo players, I was a lifeguard is what I decided I wanted to do because I needed expendable income, right? I was 16 years old. My parents were like, hey, you need expendable income. All these things that you want to do, we're not paying for them. It's time for you to get a job. Pony up, bud. Um, and so, um, so if you've ever been through like lifeguard training, you know it is rigorous, it's not, actually. Um, we, is, there's three days of training that you have to do. The first two days, um, you sit in a classroom for like five hours per day. Um, and you take a test at the end of both of those days. So you learn everything like CPR, first aid, all like how to deliver a baby, like all of these different random things that I would never need. But all, everything you are supposed to be able to know and understand to be able to rescue someone if they were, you know, if, if their life was in danger uh, or in, in some way. And so as I'm going through the class, though, I realized that she, she put us in groups of four, right, our teacher. And then at the end of both days, like I said, we had to take that test. So not only was this teacher so lax, that we got to sit there in a group of four and not pay attention. But beyond that, um, at the time for the test, she's like, this is going to be a group test. That's like, cool. That sounds great. Um, so all four of us are going to, no, 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 not just four of us. We put two groups together. So eight people at a time were taking a test to be able to pass this thing. So I'm like, how short are we on lifeguards that we're like, yes, everybody needs to pass this test, right? So those are the first two days. And then the last day, the third day, um, I just had to prove that I could swim. Um, and so being a water polo player, they said, hey, you have to swim 400 yards without stopping. I'm like, okay. So my warm-up then for water polo, cool. So I had to do that, and then I had to tread water for a minute, and they were like, all right, you are now certified to save all of the people. It's like, I don't, I don't know if I actually am certified to save all of the people. Like, I'm certified. I don't know if I'm qualified, though, right? So then I started thinking about, well, where am I going to work? Because there are a bunch of options in Merced, where I grew up, Atwater, where I grew up, is there's like the lake, um, and a lot of people would like, they always dealt with like big issues out there, like people drowning or people having babies like out at the lake because they're not near a hospital, like all this stuff. I was like, no, 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 I don't want, <laughs> I don't want the lake. And there's like the public pool. Should I go to the public cool pool? And I was like, no, that thing has to get closed and shocked like every single day for reasons that you understand. Um, and then, uh, then I was like, you know what? I, I know there's a private health club that I should apply to go to, right? So I applied at this private health club. I, I got the job as a lifeguard at this private health club, and it was cush. It was so easy, right? Like, I would show up. There were maybe 10 people at the pool uh, throughout my entire day as I was there. And I say at the pool because at a private health club, you don't swim, right? Like, you go there, and you work on your tan, and you order food, and that's kind of the extent of it. I had to do two things that entire summer uh, for, for uh, first aid type stuff, right? So one of the times a lady brought her grandson in, who was probably four or five at the time. He could swim, wasn't overly concerned. I was just fascinated there was someone actually swimming in our pool as I'm watching him, right? Because normally it was just water I was looking at. And so this kid without goggles is swimming around in the shallow and all of a sudden he swam straight into the top steps and busted his nose, right? I know, that poor kid. Um, and so he got out of the water and his nose is bleeding. And for me, like the CPR, first aid, like all that stuff like went straight out the window, which would have been weird for me to give CPR anyway for a broken nose, but whatever. So it went straight out the window. I was like, what would my mom do, right? Like every good student, every good kid would think, my mom, my mom has handled this in the past. So I was like, hold the bridge of your nose and I'll shove Kleenex up there. How about that? Sound like a plan? So we did that, 
right? And he left with grandma. Two weeks later, uh, after that, same kid comes in the pool, did the same exact thing again, swim straight into the steps. And at that point, it's like, I don't feel sorry for you anymore. Either get goggles or get better at swimming, one of the two, right? Increase your self-awareness. But I began thinking to myself, like, if, like, if something serious did happen, I would be in real trouble, right? If someone started drowning or someone had like, you know, some sort of allergic reaction to the bougie food that they were ordering next to the pool or something like that, like I would not be equipped to be able to handle that in my, in my life. Even though I was licensed, I did not feel equipped to be able to, uh, to handle any of those things. And I think that's actually true in our spiritual lives as well. Oftentimes we assume that we are not prepared for whatever it is that is, that, that is going to be asked of us, specifically when it comes to sharing our faith, right? We think that, that sharing our faith, we need to have all the answers. We need to be able to understand what it means. Uh, if so, like, what if someone asks me a hard question or I'm a little bit nervous or scared because somebody could know more than me about the Bible or what if they ask me something? You know, all of those those different things. And so maybe for you, it's your faith. Maybe, maybe you have found that like in a, in a job where you just started or something like that as well, right? Where I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm, I'm ill prepared for this. Or maybe think about the first time that you had a baby and you brought that baby home from the hospital. Like, I don't know about you, but after being waited on by like hand and foot from the doctors for like two and a half days straight, where I didn't have to do anything. And all of a sudden they're like, all right, you have to leave now. Like, <laughs> cool, so what about the kid? Do we leave him? Like, how does that work? You know what I mean? Um, and so, like, no, you, you take the baby with you. Make sure it's in the car seat. You take him home. And so, I, like, I was ill-prepared to be a father. Like, I am so thankful I had a wife who knew exactly what she was doing, because I didn't even babysit growing up, right? I was like, no, I don't babysit. I don't do those things. Like, I lifeguard and get a tan and watch five-year-olds swim into the steps. Like, that was my income, you know? Um, and so, I was just thankful that I had a wife who, anytime the baby cried, I just brought the kid to her and called it a day. Um, and so, a great dad. Um, but, uh, but I think it's true in many areas of our life, right? But I think one of the biggest ones that we need to be most concerned with is when we feel kind of that fear of rejection, we can feel that fear of being able to articulate or share our faith uh, to a world that's actually incredibly, incredibly uh, broken. And so today we're going to take a little bit of a look at that, that, that we are God's plan A for the world and what that means for us as a church. And we're going to see that in Mark chapter 3 as we're continuing through. So we're going to be in verse 1. We're going to start in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. You can click open on your device um, if you want. But, uh, but this is what it says, starting in chapter, or verse 1, chapter 3. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. All right, time out. That's the end of verse 2, right? Let's pick up here. This is the end of the five different controversies. This is the fifth of five controversies that we've been walking through over the course of the last couple weeks. And these are the controversies that Jesus and the Pharisees are having with one another. Other. And so we've seen a whole bunch of different reasons for this. We'll get into to more of them, but they are sitting here waiting for Jesus to do something on the Sabbath, to break the Sabbath uh, once again. Verse 3, so Jesus said to the, to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, what is, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. 
he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So let's start by looking back at at verse 1, okay? Jesus is in a synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. This man is no stranger to suffering, okay? We don't know why his hand is shriveled. We don't know if it was born like that. We don't know if it happened later on in life or anything like that, but according to, to Luke 6, 6, was the parallel passage to this one in Luke, um, it was his right hand that was shriveled, Okay, so in that society, it would have been incredibly difficult for him to get a job, probably very difficult for him uh, to get a wife, because you have to remember, especially if he was born this way, oftentimes people thought if there was some sort of physical ailment with somebody, it was due to the fact that either you had sinned or your parents had sinned. That was just like this ongoing notion. And so for someone to have some sort of ailment like that on his hand or, or his physical appearance, whatever, it was going to make life very, very, very difficult for him, right? Even can you imagine, I mean, people coming to shake your hand or, or whatever, like, and he has to kind of awkwardly extend his left hand. He must have felt like no one maybe could understand him, like, like he was, you know, some sort of outcast most, most likely at that point. Maybe he sat alone in the corner of, of the synagogue with his hand tucked away in his pocket so people wouldn't necessarily notice him, right? Day after day, maybe he wrestled with the idea that, like, why would God allow this to happen to me? He's obviously a believer. He's at the synagogue, okay, but why would God allow this to happen to me? And can you blame him, right? Like, I know I have felt that way on a number of occasions. Maybe you have felt that way on occasion as well, right? Like, I go to church. I pay my tithe. Like, I, I do all of the things that they ask me to do. I share my faith. I've been a small group. I serve. Man, I served twice last month and with junior hires, no less. Like, God, you should give me a double portion of your blessing for that. You know what I mean? And so, and then all of a sudden, something bad happens. You think, like, God, why, why would you allow something bad like this to happen to me? Even for me, like I said, like on a number of occasions, I think to myself, I, I serve you. I love you my entire life revolves around people coming to know you. Why, God, would you allow bad things to happen to me? May have thought that as I was laying in the fetal position on my bathroom floor after throwing out my back, right? Like, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? And so again, I think that's a true statement probably for all of us. No matter how stable maybe we appear from the outside, all of us love to appear stable and put together on the outside. Uh, everyone kind of deals with these different problems on, on the inside that oftentimes are beyond our control, that we can't do anything to solve it. But all of us are very aware of those issues that we face on a regular, on a regular basis. And this man here is going to be no different. But on this day, this man with the shriveled hand found reason for hope. So Jesus had come to the synagogue. We don't know if this man knew Jesus was coming to the synagogue, and so because of that, he showed up, or if it was just by divine appointment that the two of them were there um, at the same time. But when Jesus discovers his condition, uh, you know, his heart goes out to this man immediately. Right? He has sympathy for him, but before he could do anything, something else is beginning to develop behind the scenes. Some Pharisees were watching Jesus very, very closely in hopes of kind of twisting this miracle into an accusation of breaking the Sabbath, right? And so again, these Pharisees, these men had already clashed with Jesus on several occasions, right? We talked about these for the last couple of weeks. They were absolutely appalled when Jesus forgave sins back in the beginning of chapter two, right? Jesus comes onto the scene and he forgives sins. And they're like, hold on, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. How dare you forgive sins? And Jesus is like, hey, 
I am God, dummies. Like, that's why I can forgive sins. That's not a quote. Jesus didn't say that. But, so that's like one instance. And then, and then they, they get upset when he ate with tax collectors and sinners. We talked about that last week when Jesus calls Levi, right? And Levi comes and he, he invites all of his friends to a party. And all of Levi's friends really are just a bunch of other sinners and tax collectors. And so because of that, he's like, hey, come meet this Jesus guy who invited me to follow him. And so Jesus comes onto the scene. They're all there. And the Pharisees, shocker, show up trying to catch Jesus in sin. And so because of that, they're like, you eat with sinners, you eat with tax collectors. You should, be, you should be doing the things that we do, which led him into the next disagreement, which was talking about breaking the Sabbath. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're walking along, they're getting hungry for a snack, and they began popping off some ends of grain to have a snack on the Sabbath. And so all of these different times, they are confronting Jesus over and over and over again, and they are completely and totally uh, offended by his disregard of the traditions of the elders that, that, that they had put into place. And so Jesus's growing popularity at this point had probably blinded them with jealousy. Like they felt like their established way of life is probably being threatened. And so Jesus knew exactly what, we, he is, what was going on. He had already determined in his mind uh, what he was going to do. So he called the man with this, this shriveled hand forward saying, he says, stand up in front of everyone. And then he asked him, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? So I want you to put yourself in this man's shoes, right? This man with a shriveled hand, probably a social outcast, probably someone that didn't have a lot of friends, probably a little bit, a little bit embarrassed about his physical condition. And all of a sudden you got Jesus there who's like, hey, stand up. Like, I don't know if any of you were ever, like, in junior high when a teacher, like, all of a sudden asked you to stand up at your desk and you felt like eyes just, like, beaming at you, like, cutting lasers through you. Imagine how this guy felt. I mean, it's the same way with me this morning when I woke up and my back was just on fire. I was like, that's not what I had hoped for. Like, the last thing I wanted to do was hobble out on stage and have different people carry my stuff out here for me so I could sit down like an old man, right? Like, that was my biggest, I don't want people knowing about this. Like, it's, it's slightly embarrassing, you know? And so I bet this guy kind of felt the same way. And so Jesus asks the Pharisees at this point, which, which is better, to do good or do evil on the Sabbath? And so Jesus really, he cuts right to the chase, right to the essence of this controversy between him and the religious leaders at this point. Even a kid knows that doing what is good on the Sabbath, like, like saving a life is much better than, uh, than killing on the Sabbath. But the the religious leaders at this point, they just remain silent. They're not concerned with the heart of the issue. They're concerned with the legality of the issue. That's all they're concerned with right now, because all they want to do is catch Jesus doing something that they don't think he should be doing. And so the text tells us that Jesus is filled with kind of like this righteous anger until he became deeply disturbed, is what it says. And we're going to go back to that in just a second. But he becomes deeply, deeply disturbed. These guys, these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, these people were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. These were the head honchos, but they didn't even care about what was good at this point. God's heart seemingly is kind of grieving over the, the corrupt leadership who was supposed to be taking care of his people, and this is what they got. This is what Jesus had a front, front row to. But Jesus doesn't allow them to stand in the way of his compassion for this guy at all. So he turned to the man and he said, stretch out your hand. Now for us, again, easy. But this guy, not only is he standing up in the middle of a synagogue, 
Okay, but beyond that, he's probably trying to hide his shriveled hand, doesn't ever say that Jesus talks about or alludes to his hand before this. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, hey, show us the thing that you are most insecure about in your entire life. Doesn't say I'm going to heal it. He says, stretch out your hand. So the man, I'm sure, very timidly stretches out his hand, probably had to overcome his self-consciousness, his doubts, his fear of the religious leaders, of even being seen as less than than somebody else uh, in the synagogue. But when he did so, his hand becomes completely restored, just as functional as his other hand. Totally a new person physically. We don't know about his spiritual state. My guess is, is that after somebody heals you physically, you're like, okay, I'll listen to whatever this guy has to say. So hopefully his spiritual state is, uh, is renewed as well. Okay, but one of the things that strikes me about this part of the passage is that Jesus' words have power to take whatever is dead, have power to take whatever is useless within us and give it new life. So when you think about that as you're reading scripture, when you think about that as God's holy revelation, his Bible, the Bible that is given to us in conjunction with the Holy Spirit can take what is dead and renew it in the same way that this man's hand was completely and totally renewed. And so this last controversy here is going to stir the pot or continue to stir the pot for Jesus and the Pharisees, right? This is going to come to a conclusion at the end of the book of Mark. They had enough about Jesus. They had enough uh, regarding his ministry, and neither one of these two sides are going to back down, not Jesus and his disciples and not the Pharisees. So in this story, we recognize, though, that in this story, the world is broken. Okay? The world is sick. The world is sinful, and all of us are in need of Jesus. This was put on very real display earlier this week in Uvalde, which we had Jeff come, come and pray for and talk about, that our world is sick, our world is broken, and there is no amount of political correctness, there is no amount of, of anything that we can do on this side of eternity that is going to heal our world. Hear that. Because oftentimes we think, well, if I can just pass this legislation, or if we can just put these people in front of schools, it's true maybe a deterrent, but make no mistake, the world is sick. The world is in need of a savior. And in the same way that we have a man with a shriveled hand, a man who is completely and totally lost without Jesus, in that same way, all he needed in that respect was a savior. He needed Jesus to come and speak words into his life, words that told him that he is worthy Words that told him that, that he was going to be okay. And so, so we need to recognize in this story that our world is sick, but it doesn't stop there. It continues in verses 7 through 12. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed when they heard about all he was doing. Many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Adumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So Jesus at this point, he continues his rock star status in the region, right? And because of that, they again withdrew after Jesus had finished healing this guy. 
This is going to be an ongoing occurrence that we see these crowds kind of press in, especially after Jesus uh, performs miracles. Why? Because they think Jesus is a miracle worker. There are people who are sick. There are people who are injured. There are people who recognize that they are devoid of hope. And so because of that, anywhere Jesus goes, that's where they want to be. Not because he's the savior of the world, but because he's a miracle worker. They have downplayed who Jesus actually is. And the, the, the hard thing is, on this side of the story, all of us are like, come on, guys. Couldn't you recognize who Jesus is? But here's the deal. We do the same exact thing that these people who are sick and hurting and injured do. Every single one of us. You ever wonder why your prayer life goes to the roof as soon as something difficult happens? Right? As soon as you get hurt, man, I have been praying more than I have ever prayed the last three days for my back to, to be like healing and functional before I tried to walk on stage today. Right? Why? Because my life got harder. It got more difficult. Jesus, fix me. Miracle worker Jesus, fix me. Not savior of the world. Jesus, do what you want with me. Miracle worker, heal me. Fix me. Miracle worker, take away my grief. Miracle worker, take away my addiction. Miracle worker, take away this thing that I, am, that I am struggling with. And so that's why the crowds kept creeping in. Anytime he would heal, the crowds. And so before, Jesus bounced real early in the morning. He's like, before anybody wakes up, I want to go out to the wilderness somewhere. This time, once he was done at the synagogue, he leaves. And everybody's like, we could just follow that dude. So they start following, following him out, right, out to, to Galilee. He's in, in, and so him and his disciples, they're there. And, they're, and Jesus is like, hey, grab a boat. I'm going to preach from the boat because all these people kind of keep, keep pressing, pressing in on me. And this is like the methodology that he keeps going to. He, Jesus is going to go to synagogues. He's going to teach. He's going to heal. He's going to challenge religious authorities. And he's going to go drop the mic and head back out to the wilderness somewhere. That's Jesus' methodology over and over and over again. We have this established methodology. And then, and then really the rest of this story is going to unfold. This passage, like the conclusion of this passage that we're going to finish with today, largely is the end of the introduction to the book of Mark. Think about any good book or movie that you would see, right? If you're not a reader, movie, that's fine. But, but think about any book you would read, fiction. Okay, fiction books on the first page, they, the vast majority of fiction books, they are always going to establish the setting for you. Oftentimes, it's in the first sentence, right? You read that first sentence, there is a date, there is a place, there is a location somewhere, there's a time, maybe, right? Think about Star Wars, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Setting, right? And so this is what Mark has done for us. He has established a setting, not only a setting, he's established protagonists and antagonists, right? Protagonists for all of you English buffs out there. The main character, we know Jesus is out there as the main character. We have the antagonists as the Pharisees. Obviously, Satan, you know, he's an antagonist as well. But so far, Mark in his writing to both the Jewish and the Gentile communities that he is writing to, they need, Mark is trying to get them to understand that there is a disconnect here between the Jewish faith and the Christian faith that has now been established because of Jesus. And so that's the intro that we have. And now Mark goes on to introduce us to the rest of the players in the next, next couple of verses, starting in verse 13. 
It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, we think about the 12 apostles, right? The 12 disciples actually in this. Typically, if you have any kind of background in the church, maybe Catholic background, maybe uh, Anglican church, uh, or you've been to Europe, maybe you've been to a, a, those cathedrals, right? You see that massive stained glass, and the apostles are enshrined in that stained glass, Oftentimes, they're just below the stained glass of Jesus or, or just below God. They're typically elevated in some like transcendent type of way. Like these people, these are important people in a very prominent place because the assumption is that these are the highest and the best and the classiest and, and the most religiously ascended of all Christians. And we put that stock into them. But the funny thing is about these guys is nothing actually could be further from the truth. Anytime I read about the apostles, I feel so much better about myself. So much better about myself. They are, they're not these like otherworldly, overtly celestial beings. They're not nearly divine at all. They're not the cream of the crop among men. They're not the highest. They're not the noblest and the best. They're not the most educated. They're not the most highly skilled. They're mo not the most uh, gifted humanly speaking. The truth is really is they basically are distinguished by one thing. All of them. One thing they are distinguished by. They're ordinary. All of them. Just ordinary people. They are a, a, a motley group of guys and very, very strange group at that. Like if you if you'd had to handpick a group of 12 people to help you change the world, you would not pick any of these guys. None of them. You know, most people believe that up to seven of them were fishermen. Seven of them. Look, I don't fish, and I don't mean this to sound insulting. But if I'm looking for a group of people to change the world, and I get 12 picks, seven of them are definitely not going to be fishermen. Okay? They're just not. Like what, like, what do they bring to the table? Like, I could tie knots good. Cool. Right? So up to seven of these guys are fishermen. Okay, you can, like, like that may be the most common ground that we can get from these guys. The others are so different in the things that they did. And we know for sure oh, four of them are fishermen, like I said, up to seven. But there would be no reason that there would be a collection of these men together, to, to, to work together, to live together, to be together, to minister together outside of the purposes of God. That's it. That's the only reason these guys would be together. And they're perfectly ordinary in every, every way. In scholarship, they, I guarantee you every single person in here, regardless of age, was smarter than these 12 guys. I mean, it's just absolutely true. None of them are, were orators or theologians. They were outsiders, total outsiders from the religious establishment. So when you talk about this idea that these 12 guys plus Jesus overthrew the Jewish religious establishment or at the very least challenged it in very real ways, it seems silly. It seems dumb because they weren't highly educated they were prone to mistakes, they were prone to, to misjudgments, misunderstandings, bad attitudes, lapses of faith, bitter failure, argumentativeness, 
and, and, and no more so than their leader, Peter, by the way. And Jesus remarked that they were slow learners. They are spiritually dense blockheads. That's who the disciples were. That's who got the opportunity to change the world. And beyond that, man, they got in arguments all the time, right? Like, like, and not like good arguments, like arguments of like, hey, Jesus, who's the best? Jesus, if you had to pick one of the 12 of us that was the best, which one do you think was the best, right? Like that's the argument. And then they got their mom to go talk to Jesus about sitting next to him in heaven one day. Like, come on, come on, disciples. And then beyond that, you think about them on the political spectrum, Okay, these 12 guys in the political spectrum, man, they probably hit every single political party that we currently have and more, right? They are all over the place. One of them was a zealot, okay, a radical, a political radical, and, and, and zealot's job at the time was to overthrow Roman rule. Like, if you were Roman or worked for Rome, they were going to stab you, right? That's it, like legitimately, they were going to stab you. That's what they, they want, that was their goal, is to overthrow uh, the Romans, they carried around little daggers in their cloaks. So when they found a Roman soldier unsuspecting, they murdered him, right? Like, that, like that, was, that was their goal in life. But another guy was a tax collector, okay? And, and tax collectors, like we talked about a couple weeks ago with Levi, okay? These guys were the scum of the earth, according to Jews. Why? Because they worked for Rome, they turned on Rome. So we're talking about zealots who want to kill people who work for Rome, and these two guys are supposed to work together to change the world? Yep. All over the place, politically. And if those two guys met each other somewhere along the way, one might have killed the other one, and the other one probably would have tried to take the other person's money, right? Like, that's just who they were. They were virtually all from Galilee, with the exception of Judas, who was the only outsider and total stranger. Like, come on, guys. We could have guessed who the guy was going to be, right? But they grew up in the same basic area, common towns like, like, like Capernaum, like we have talked about. And they may have known each other growing up. We don't, we don't really know that. But all of these guys, character flaws and all, completely and totally turn the world upside down. And their ministry is still going on today. Oh, where's their ministry going on? Here. Welcome to First Baptist right? Like, the, like their legacy continues to play on. I don't know if you've ever gotten an opportunity to walk in this back hallway if you go through one of these doors and, and turn left or, or right. Switch it, right? But as you walk down, we have a massive timeline along that wall that just shows the timeline of our church. It's like the last 130 years dating all the way back to when we started in the chapel, chapel, chapel called Evan, Car Evangel. That was hard to say, right? And then all the way through. And as I walk down, I always look at the faces of the pastors who are on the wall, right? And think to myself, like, man, that's really cool. Like, I am part of their legacy. Or even before, like, photos were readily available in the letters that some of these pastors had written, I'm like, man, that's awesome. I am part of the legacy of FBH. And we think, man, that's a long time, 130 years that a church has been around. It is a long time. And that's exciting that we get to be part of that legacy. But even more exciting is the legacy that the disciples set up 2,000 years ago that we are continuing to walk down and perpetuate today, perpetuate in a, good, in a good way. So all of these guys, 
They were personally selected out of the many disciples that followed Jesus, right? Oftentimes we think, oh, there's just these 12 guys who are following around. No, there were tons of people following him around. And then Jesus goes up to the mountain. He calls to these 12 specifically. Somebody's feelings probably got hurt because they didn't get picked for Jesus' dodgeball team at that point, right? There were more than 12 of them waiting for that call. And Jesus is like, nope, you 12 coming up. It was intentional. They were personally selected. They didn't volunteer for that job. He chose them for the job. He called them. He knew them only as their creator could know them. He knew their faults long before he chose them. He knew their weaknesses. He knew their failures. He even knew that Judas was going to betray him and chose him anyway. Why? Because they had work to do, and there was one way that it was going to be able to get accomplished. And even though he chose Judas, he gave him all of the privileges and blessings that he gave every single other disciple as well. And so when you think about the ramifications of this, you've got these 12 nondescript, super ordinary, no name, kind of eclectic dudes who Jesus has called up on a mountain and brought together. And from human perspective, the whole extension of the kingdom of God, the advance of the gospel in the world depends upon these 12. There is no plan B. There is no second string. These are the guys who are responsible for carrying out ministry to the rest of the world. They and their associates, they're the ones who are actually going to write the entirety of the New Testament. Right? They sat down at some point, and them, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, wrote these gospels, wrote this message. And 2,000 years later, we are still studying it from a bunch of fishermen who wrote down stuff about a guy that they hung out with, right? But they are going to be the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 actually tells us that the apostles are the foundation of the church. And it all depends on 12 men whose most notable characteristic is that they were plain, ordinary guys. That's it. So just for a second, and I'm going to quickly take a quick rabbit trail, and then we'll, then we'll land the plane. But I want to answer the question as to why there were 12 of them. Okay, and this goes back to Jesus being pretty upset at the beginning of this passage with, with the religious leaders at the time. Remember, I said that it, it talks about his heart was like deeply grieved over this. He had righteous anger. And it wasn't righteous anger because of, because of anything else other than these men were sitting there, these men who were supposed to be guiding Israel spiritually, supposed to be guiding God's chosen people in such a way that they were going to become, like have a greater connection with God. These men, these Pharisees that were put into place were a complete and total disgrace. So I don't think it is strange that immediately after this, immediately after this encounter, Mark tells about the calling of those 12 disciples. Why? I think it's because Jesus here is showing that he is going to replace what what, what had been put in place years ago. Jacob's 12 sons that were put into place, the tribes of Israel, the first Pharisees, if you will, the leaders of the religious law that were put into place in order to help guide and shepherd Israel. Jesus says, that's not going to work anymore. We're not going to try to put a square peg into a round hole. We are going to get 12 new guys. And see these guys, these ordinary, normal guys with no birthrights, with no anything special about them, through the work and the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we're going to change the world with them, not with these guys. Jesus is replacing 
Judaism with Christianity in this point, metaphorically speaking anyways, with these 12 apostles that he, that, that he has chosen. In effect, he's saying, your established leadership has failed you. This, these guys are now going to be the guys that are responsible for carrying out and establishing ministry. And so I think the, the, the key to understanding all of this is actually verse 14. So I don't know if it's up on the screen or not, but, but in verse 14, he talks about his intentions where, where he appointed 12 for two reasons. And those two reasons are that they would be with him and then they would preach about him. That's it. These 12 guys, hey, guys, come hang out with me, come be with me, come commune with me, come get filled up by me, and then when you're not with me anymore, I want you to go preach about me and tell me about what it is that I did in your life. I mean, I feel like we overcomplicate sharing our faith. If that's how Jesus told them what they were supposed to do, come be with me and then go preach about me. Hey, welcome to church. This is where you get filled up. This is where we sing songs to make us feel good. This is where we sing songs to glorify Jesus. This is where we learn a little bit more about the Bible. And then after we have been together, after we've communed together, after we've fellowshiped with one another, now it's the second part. We get to go preach about him. We get to go talk about what he did in our lives. These 12 men are the hope and the spread of the gospel by that equation. Come hang out with me and go teach about me. That's really it. And they're the foundation of the church. Right? You, you remember the Great Commission? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? Like he talks about that. They are, they are the new leaders of the new kingdom, of the new covenant. They're the new leaders of this, this new Israel, divinely appointed, approved representatives of Christ to preach that salvation. That's what they were called to do. Acts 4.13 talks about the elite in Israel looked at them and said, what in the world is this? These untrained, uneducated, unskilled people from Galilee. And the only explanation they could give for the power that they had was that they took note of them that they had been with whom? Jesus. That's the only explanation they could give because they were so normal. There was nothing special about them except that they had been with Jesus. And that is always, that was always going to be the explanation. Their power, what they were good at, was never going to be the explanation. Jesus was. Jesus is the explanation. Right? God doesn't need the wise. He doesn't need the scribes. He doesn't need the people who are great at debating or the best orators or the people with the healthiest backs Right? He doesn't need those people. He's happy to show his power is with him so that there's never going to be any confusion about whether or not these 12 guys pulled off a world-changing event. If you can sit in your seat today and assume to yourself that these 12 guys were the ones responsible for pulling off the greatest feat in the history of the world, I'm sorry, but you're delusional because they're just not those guys. They really aren't. 
So as we look at these men, as we look at the entirety of the New Testament, we can see that there is nothing but simple guys who aren't very smart but were willing to spend time with Jesus. Why? Because God uses ordinary, weak, failing, ignorant saints. Why? Because that's all there are. That's it. That's who all of us are. And Jesus, while they're up on the mountain, was preparing them for the work of ministry. So the question is for you this morning, are you prepared for the work of ministry? Have you spent time with Jesus so then you can go teach about Jesus? Or is this it? Like, is this your prep time? Because if this is your prep time, you're missing six days. You're a seventh of the way there, and I'm glad you're there. But we got a much longer way to go. And so, so in order to understand if you are prepared for the work of ministry, you have to understand who you are spiritually. That each of us, apart from Christ's sacrifice on the cross, is completely and totally spiritually dead. Completely and totally spiritually bankrupt. But then we call to him, right? When we are called to him and we come to a, a saving faith in, faith in Christ, we are called into his presence to spend time with him to be with him, to be transformed by him. Because much like the disciples and eventually apostles, we are God's plan A for the world now. The church is God's plan A for the world. There is no other plan. So while the world needs Jesus, desperately so, like the man with the shriveled hand, like our world who is sick and dying, while the world needs Jesus, the people who follow him, follow him who are responsible for communicating that message... Like, it's our responsibility to take up that mantle. And the only way we get prepared to do that is to spend time with him. Not in your power, in his power. And the disciples were humble enough to recognize they could do nothing apart from the Messiah. And then they got to live out that great commission in Matthew 28, 19, where it says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our responsibility today is the same as the disciples' responsibility then. Spend time with him and teach about him. We are supposed to come to a saving faith in Jesus, spend time with him, and tell a lost and broken world about him. So where are you overcomplicating it this morning? Is it your fear? Is it your angst? Is it your uncomfortableness? Do you feel ill-prepared in order to share about what Jesus has done in your life? Guess what? You are the resident expert about what Jesus has done in your life. No one knows any better than you do personally. But beyond that, and not even to get complicated this, or not even to get political this morning. Okay, but we talk about these people who need Jesus, and we recognize that much like I talked about earlier, there is very real evil and very real sin in this world. We saw it this week in Uvalde. We continue to see it over and over and over again. And like I said earlier, while there may be things that we could put into place, logistical things that we could do to help eliminate those tragedies from happening. The reality is, is sin is always going to be in this world. And as long as sin is in this world, it is the responsibility of the believer to provide hope in a hopeless and dark place. So church, you want things like what happened in Uvalde to hopefully go away? You want tragedy to go away? You want darkness to fade away? You want war to no longer be necessary? It's not going to happen on this side of eternity. But if the church does their job, if the church does the job, God's plan A, providing and speaking 
hope and truth into a world that is devoid of both, then I legitimately believe many things would improve in the world. But church, it's our responsibility to grab that gumption, to get over our fear, to spend time with Jesus and then teach about what he has done in our lives so others can have the same hope that we have in that. Because if you don't believe me that the world is lost and sick and dying and desperately in need of Jesus, then I don't know what to tell you. We are in worse shape than the man with the shriveled hand at the beginning of this story. Our world is desperately in need of a savior. And church, it's your job to talk about it. It's your job to teach about it. It's your job to share about it to those people who are in your world. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, out of, <laughs> out of both sides of my mouth, I pray this, and, and one being, God, thank you for those who have laid down their lives for the freedoms that we take for granted so often. So, Father, thank you for the men and women who sacrificed their lives for us to have the freedom to be able to talk about you, to be able to talk about your word and your church and all of that stuff. And on the other side, out of the other side of my mouth, God, I'm just heartbroken about the reminder of evil and brokenness in our world, about what happened in Texas this week. And God, we continue to lift up those who survived and the families of those who, who passed. God, that they would come to see you in a very real way, that you make all things new, that you are the only person who could use this tragedy for good. And so, God, I pray that you would do that. But, Father, I pray that your church, God, that, that we would harness that in, intestinal fortitude to just do what you've called us to do, to spend time with you and to teach about you. And that's it and not overcomplicate it, and not think that, that we can't do it, not think that we don't have the right pedigree or we're not smart enough or anything like that, that we recognize that you took 12 very, very ordinary people and you used them to alter the course of history through your power, through your name. And so God, I pray that you would raise us up again. I pray that you would raise up your church and not just FBH, not just the Church of the West, but the universal global church that you would utilize us in the way that you've called us to be used. So Father, for those of us in here maybe who haven't said yes to Jesus, maybe you recognize the sin and the hurting in the world that Maybe now is the time. Maybe now you're calling, Father, for us to put our faith in you. And so if that's you this morning and you want to be redeemed, you want to be healed spiritually, you can just pray along with me. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. But B, I believe you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for me and see I would choose to follow you every single day of my life. Which includes, Father, 
doing what you've called us to do. Spending time with you and teaching about you. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.